The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, what's it like to live in a new superpower? We speak to two of India's best-known writers about wealth, poverty and corruption in a new India. We ask how the new money flooding the country sits alongside the old ideas of privilege. And we've even brought in our former man in Delhi to compare notes. This is The Business from The Guardian. This is the 20th anniversary of India's Year Zero. In 1991, a bankrupt Delhi government went to the IMF for a loan. It came away with $5 billion and a mandate to open its doors to foreign businesses and to privatise its key industries. Now it's the second fastest growing economy in the world, beaten only by China. We've heard plenty from economists and politicians about this turnaround, but what do the writers make of it? In the studio, we've got one of India's most well-known authors, Arundhati Roy. Since her Booker Prize-winning novel, The God of Small Things, she's become one of the Indian state's fiercest critics. Her new book, Broken Republic, is about her time with the Maoist soldiers, who are fighting both with the Indian government and with mining companies with an eye on their land. We've also got Siddhartha Deb, a journalist and author. He too has chosen to use non-fiction to take a harsh look at modern India in his new book, the Beautiful and the Damned. And our former man in Delhi, Randeep Ramesh, is now the Guardian's social affairs correspondent. But we brought him in for one more look at the old country. Shidata, let's begin with you. Um, very early on in your book, you introduce us to this character that any visitor to India who's ever picked up an English language magazine will be familiar with. He's got glasses and a ponytail and he's selling a business school. And he's driven around in a Bentley. That's very important too. And his name's? His name is Arindam Chaudhary. He's a management guru. Tell us about him. Well, I would read from this section. Arindam, I had been told at the very beginning of my encounter with him, was a man of the times. His flamboyance, his ambition, his money-making. If his lightning rod persona made these aspects visible, it did so because these qualities already existed as charged elements in the atmosphere of contemporary India. As I came to know him, though, I felt that there was another crucial aspect in which he was a representative of the times. His fortune ultimately was built on the aspiration and resentiment of the Indian middle class. Without the aspirers looking up, emulating, admiring, and parting with their cash, Mughals like Arindam would not exist. He had made a business out of their aspirations, calibrating the brashness and insecurity that had come to them on the wings of the market economy and its political partner, right-wing Hinduism. Arindam understood well how these aspirers had been given a language of assertion by the times they lived in and how they had also been handed a vocabulary of rage that is quite disproportionate to their perceived provocations. It is one of the triumphs of our age that aspirers can be made to feel both empowered and excluded, and that all over the world one sees a new lumpen bourgeoisie quick to express a sense of victimization, voicing their anger about being excluded from the elite while being callously indifferent to the truly impoverished. Thank you very much. Um, you've thrown an awful lot of accusations at poor old Arundam Chaudhary there. I mean, all he's doing is selling a, a couple of books with stupid titles in a business school. Is he really that much a representative of New India? What, what do you mean by that? I think he's representative in the sense that there's a great deal of confidence in him, that he, this is his time, 
uh, someone like Arindam, when he talks to me, he says, you know, um, he said, that, oh, let Harvard complain. Uh, you know, Harvard is old. Harvard is, uh, Harvard is like the past. We are the new. There was a review of your book in this weekend's rev- uh, Guardian Review uh, by Amit Chaudhary, and he brought out the resonances between your book and the kind of the America described by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Is that the kind of the the parallel that you see? This kind of a gilded age for a certain proportion of Americans, not shared in by the, by the others. Yes, I mean it was a kind of you know metaphor that was very much uh, dominant in my mind when I began researching this book. Um, I mean, I started off, um, yeah, I think the the incredible inequality of the Gilded Age was something that came to mind. The expansion, the fact that there's a very flamboyant elite, tiny flamboyant elite that's very, very, um, you know, uh, takes to flaunting its wealth. And um, and often the focus, the, the larger focus of the world, the Western media and the Indian media has been on that. And then there are just these vast hundreds of millions of people who are just utterly excluded. So I was seeing that kind of Gilded Age parallel, and I was interested in uh, Chaudhary as a kind of Gatsby figure, um, sort of, because, you know, he also evokes a kind of puzzlement and... Uh, dislike hostility from the older elite. Uh, Basically, he's a representative of the new elite pushing its way up and you know, not uh, and which doesn't mean to which is not to say that he's rags to riches at all. No, he's like comes from fairly well-to-do upper middle class Delhi origins. So you know, there's not that kind of mobility. You know, there's no rags to riches story out here. But yeah, there is this absolute gulf between the sort of the flashiness of the elite and the middle classes, and the sheer desperation. I would say, of a vast sort of invisible majority. Randy, let's bring you in here. I suppose one of the ways in which you, you're meant to say that New India is different from the old is that there's less of a sense of entitlement and inheritance, that you're meant to have greater degrees... Well, that's a promise, anyway. You're meant to have greater degrees of mobility. Do you think that's right? Um, it's probably right for a sort of certain class of people who are sort of floating away on a sea of indifference from the sort of main Indian republic. Um, and certainly the kind of opportunities that are offered to that very sort of small crust, successful crust in India, um, has allowed them to do so. I think the, the thing with someone like Arindam Chowdhury is how he plays upon people's desires and fears and, and kind of captures them. Um, and they believe him. And despite all the overwhelming evidence that he's nothing more than a sort of hustler, um, they, they fall for it. And I think that's kind of a failure of other elements in India, not to sort of... To, to sort of give people the sort of protection of, of intellectual ideas that may sort of say, you know what, you're falling for this and you're falling badly. Um, honestly, this sounds in some ways familiar to me as kind of a critique of forced consciousness that we're all, that people in the new India have been sold a lie. But there must be something more to it than that, surely. Um, let, me, let me just uh, put it down at, uh, you know, bring the level of this discussion really low and talk about just uh, the business of education in India now. You know, the whole business of privatization, mm. of the state withdrawing from from education, even at the primary level, and privatizing it. And you, you can imagine a, a nation of a billion people where this small middle class dream is available, but available to a few. But everybody wants that education and the amount of money there is in that. Education is, is perhaps one of the biggest 
business is going and and you have to sell it just like you sell uh, anything else like tv flat screens or running shoes or whatever you have you have to uh, advertise it and market it as a product orandati i mean w- one of the things that you might uh, get thrown at uh, uh, kind of critics of this new era for india is that actually if you want to open up education or if you want to provide greater public services you actually need some of this very volatile unequal economic growth to provide those dividends for the rest of the country what do you make of that argument um i think that uh, you know there's there's this constant um thing that is thrown at critics of this where they try to create a binary and they say but surely there is there are some benefits and the argument obviously there are some benefits but are those benefits uh for a very few at the cost of the majority I, I, is it of course some good is being done to some people a whole middle class has been created but is it, but is are the costs that are being paid by a much vaster underclass too high that's the question mm-hmm. is it for the greater common good these policies you know and clearly what has happened that is that it's not because since they started a, a, a figure of something like 836 million living on less than 20 rupees a day you have more than 170,000 i think farmers who've committed suicide caught in debt you have an increasing ecological crisis you have more poor people in india than the poorest country you know these figures now we all know so the point is that you can look at anything you can look at hitler's fascism you can look at anything and say surely there was something good that happened you know but is it for the larger good is the question you know and are these policies driving a, ve- a very violent wedge into india which is which is making that country ungovernable in some ways in, in not that i'm i'm not uh, saying that it ought to be governable but i'm just saying that now the even the middle class that did benefit you know and 5 years ago were far more confident of what they were gaining today realize that the atmosphere in this country is very very fragile and 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 they may not be able to hold on to what they have got because of what's going on yeah i mean i think i think to which i would add <coughs> a couple of things one is that you know there is this often often artificial rhetoric about the market versus the state mm-hmm. and in one of the ways in which it's true is that the state which has been a kind of authoritarian fairly brutal in relation to many people but in the post independence years it basically did allow the creation of a middle class uh, and we are the results of that the, um, i i certainly personally am the result of all these state subsidies that allowed me to go to school to go to college and you're and talking about the kind of old style congress yes, india y- yeah absolutely nehru's ne- india exactly and you know it, it allowed say my father to have a government job and you know which allowed this exactly you know that that's what made it possible for me to you know to become a writer in a certain way it was inefficient it was bumbling and it was very very uneven now once the middle class and we'll see all these people they've they've benefited from it and now they don't want the state to do the same for these 800 million people who are still left behind it's like too late you're too bad you've missed the bus but having said that there is still a big um, sort of convergence between the state and the market and that's in the special economic zones that i visited the argument for special economic zones for excluding them from the labor laws which are not so bad on paper although they never really put into practice is that you know we're going to create jobs we're going to create manufacturing mm. now i have visited in the course of this book i spent some time in these two 
different special economic zones. And what is interesting is that the first things that go up are not the factories. It's the private villas that are being sold for a crore. So, you know, the state is used to take over land, to use eminent domain. And, you know, the poor and the tribals, uh, the excluded are the ones who disproportionately suffer mm. from the violence of the state in the course of the market. And the other thing I would say is that even the middle class, to go back to a comment that Arundhati made, that there's this sense that, you know, things may not go on. You know, I'm not sure, and I've spent a lot of time with middle class and upper middle class characters, I'm not sure they're as happy as they're made out to be. Even when I talk to them, that first they say, yes, I have a $1.2 million house. But when you really, really, and I do these extended interviews, uh, I'm not sure that they are as on top of the world as is often seen to be the case, even for the people who are actually benefiting. Well, Orundati, if there are so many people who have been ill-served by this new regime, then you'd think there'd be quite a bit of resistance to it, especially in the politics. Where is it? Well, uh, politics is a difficult term. You know, what do you mean by it? If you mean party politics... Mm, I mean in the form of the elections. W- the, the, the world's greatest democracy w- yeah. when it comes to the ballot box. Where do you see well, the resistance? Look, um, you know... The elections are, as I, as I said in one of my essays, you know, China is good at sports, so it does the Olympics, and India does democracy, so we have elections. But in the elections, we don't really have a choice because you have the two major alliances led by the BJP or the Congress, and um, basically in economic in the economic policies, they, they stand for exactly the same thing. If you read WikiLeaks, you, you see the uh, uh, one of the leaders of the BJP telling the Americans, look, you know, we do a bit of theater, don't, don't mind us. But, you know, it's really, we, we, we're all on the same side on that. But, uh, but the real resistance, if you're talking about real resistance, it comes from a bandwidth of, uh, of people's movements, uh, you know, with the, uh, with the sort of armed uh, Maoist guerrillas on one end and the Gandhians out on the other and everything in between. And today, if you, if you follow the news carefully, not much of it is reported in the, in the Western media, but there, there are sort of insurrections everywhere. And you have a situation where uh, you you once had, you know, Manipur, Nagaland, Mizoram, Kashmir, all these places. All these places which were actually on the the peripheries, uh, fighting sort of uh, struggles for self-determination, where the Armed Forces Special Powers Act and the army was deployed. But today the army is going, these wars are migrating to the heart of India and the army is going to be deployed in in the central uh, Indian state of Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Orissa, and so on. And you have a a situation where those in power who believe that progress, the only marker of progress is the growth rate. The growth rate and democracy have become mutually exclusive. And in order to achieve that growth rate, you have to move people off their lands and dispossess them on a scale which can only be done with under the police and the military. And so India is gradually militarizing. Okay, there's a passage in your book where you talk about going to the town to meet some of these Maoist insurgents. Do you want to read it to us? Okay. Um, this was this was a, a, a journey that I made into the forests of uh, Dandakaranya, uh, where... where you know, the Maoist guerrillas are, and uh, I spent some weeks there. Uh, There are many ways to describe Dantewara. 
It's an oxymoron. It's a border town smack in the heart of India. It's the epicenter of a war. It's an upside down, inside out town. In Dantewara, the police wear plain clothes and the rebels wear uniforms. The jail superintendent is in jail. The prisoners are free. 300 of them escaped from the old town jail two years ago. Women who've been raped are in police custody and their rapists give speeches in the bazaar. Across the Indravati River, in the area controlled by the Maoists, the place the, place the police call Pakistan. There, the villages are empty, but the forests are full of people. Children who ought to be in school run wild. In the lovely forest villages, the concrete school buildings have been either blown up and lie in a heap, or they're full of policemen. The deadly war that's unfolding in the jungle is a war that the government of India is both proud and shy of. Operation Green Hunt has been proclaimed as well as denied. P. Chidambaram, India's Home Minister and CEO of the war, says that it doesn't exist, that it's a media creation. And yet, substantial funds have been allocated to it, and tens of thousands of troops are being mobilized for it. Though the theater of war is in the jungles of central India, it'll have serious consequences for us all. If ghosts are the lingering spirits of someone or something that has ceased to exist, then perhaps the National Mineral Development Corporation's new four-lane highway crashing through the forest is the opposite of a ghost. Perhaps it's the harbinger of what is still to come. Rani, you've spent a lot of time when you were in India reporting on the Maoists. What do you think they express about uh, the state of Indian politics? I think they, they fill a vacuum um, in the sense that there is no one speaking out for, in, in Dantewada for the people who are being deprived of their their lands. I mean, step back a bit. I think the, the, the real problem here is, and I think it ties in what Siddharth was saying, is the Jazz Age does exist, the Gilded Age does exist. Where did it lead America to a kind of free market madness and the Depression? Now, is India headed towards that? Um, possibly. And part of the problem is a political process that allows organized... Uh, criticism, but not armed organized criticism. It won't have that. And what we're seeing in Dantewada and Chhattisgarh is a calibrated response. Now, it's calibrated in blood. So this is not, you know, they could they could launch their jet planes and sort of bomb the forests and, you know, tip Agent Orange. Russian helico- uh, helicopters The helicopters, yesterday. yeah. They brought yeah. them. I mean, I, I said it's calibrated mm, and calibrated yeah, in blood. Yeah, so, I mean, we're, yeah. we're seeing that toll. It's whether, and this is the problem that I have, the psychology of the nation is not stirred by this, by this death. The, the, so the callousness of it all mm. passes over people. And that, that's for me, was the striking thing that, you know, you would get people who were exercised about it. But development's a dirty business in India. You know, it is paid for in lives. Now, it's whether you want to go back to the 70s. That's the retort, you know, where 1% growth meant that no one got rich and we all lived in poverty, peaceful poverty. Not that it was, of course, but that's the, that's, the, that's the narrative. That's what they'll tell you. And now you, you have, you know, blood seeping through India's forests and in its motorways and on this, in Delhi streets. And yet people are sort of happy with it. And I, I can't quite ever see that and why that is so. Um, but you do get protests in, in right in the capital. I mean, you get protests against corruption. You get, pro- you get, get films made against, you know, 
things like why no one has been taken to jail for the murder of Jessica Lowell. So you do get you do get anger expressed. Look, I think um, it's it's you know it's what what's happening is 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 quite complicated. You know, it's not like China where you have this you know straight out ban on speech and protests and everything. So it's much smarter what's happening in Delhi. But I just want to add to what mm. Randeep was saying that what you have, uh, which is quite fascinating, is a situation where yes, India wants to be the new America. The Indian elite, not maybe in the newspapers, but often quite publicly, have said and will say all these countries have a past. And that past they refer to is the genocide of American Indians or the aboriginals in Australia or the colonial past in which genocide was committed mm. to ex extract raw material for the growth of uh, you know, the Western Industrial Revolution. And quite openly, people are saying they have a past. Why can't we? They come quite openly saying things like about uh, uh, tribal people. These are people whose time has come. So you have what I call the most successful secessionist movement in India, which is the secession of the middle and upper, upper classes, middle classes yeah. into outer space. And they believe that they have the right and there's, a, there's an inevitability to this violence to what might end up as a kind of genocide, not where you're lining people up and shooting them, though that is happening too, but slowly depleting them of their resources, their access to land. Their, you know, they are pushed out of the cities. Chidambaram says that 70% of India should live in cities, which means 500 million people should move. But then they're also being pushed out of the cities when the Commonwealth Games come. So there's no space in the imagination, not in the films, not in the books, only in the publicity brochures of NGOs for, for the poor, because there again, you know, the NGOs get money if they market the poor. You have, we have stomached 70,000 dead in, in Kashmir. We have swallowed the public massacre of Muslims in Gujarat. We have accepted the unknown numbers killed in Manipur and uh, Nagaland. So, and the caste system in India, which is the engine that runs society, also allows you to think that these people are not the same as those people. And it's okay if they pay the price for the better human beings to, to progress. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of in the 19th century or in the 18th century, I mean, Western nations sort of did that on the basis of race. I mean, it became particularly sort of uh, a very refined sort of model, um, especially in the 19th century, uh, race and religion. And we're, we're doing that now, I mean, we can't, because it's like 21st century, we can't do it openly in terms of caste or ethnicity or religion. So basically now the word that is used is terrorism. It's terrorism versus democracy. And it's always very interesting how the people who line up, who are made to line up behind terrorism are always, you know, Muslims or Kashmiris or Dalits or tribals. Um, so that's the superficial, that's the surface rhetoric that's used to justify this dispossession. That is very old-fashioned. I mean, we are basically the new colonizers in some sense. Um, 
And yeah, I think distraction, I think that um, Arundhati talked about, the, the, the flamboyance, that energy that we're talking about, that's kind of like a distraction machine that's there for the middle and the upper middle classes. Because, you know, I don't think these people are evil deep down. I mean, they're, they're, nobody's like that. I mean, they're, they're all, they're all everybody's, everybody's a human being. But, you know, the distraction works to keep your eye on the glitter uh, and the how well we're doing. I don't even agree that we were that badly off in the 70s. I mean, you know, I'm a child of the 70s. I don't think... Uh, yeah, but yeah, you're but a child of a particular class in the 70s. No, actually, very low middle class. I mean, you know, my, my, I mean, you know we used to use... English the language teaching, I'm guessing. Uh, but very English cheap. medium school. Very ch- no, but, 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 but you know, I, I got in by accident, you know. I got it by accident. I mean, I mean Randy, I, the, I, think, I think there is a, a, a bigger question about uh, sort of the alternatives that India could have taken. If you're in a world which... America and Britain are saying here is a certain course of uh, economic development and you, India, should be following it. If you're in a world where India has to go to the IMF for a loan and the IMF say, in return, you must do these things, what alternatives does India really have? Well, I mean, it, it did have alternatives, but it chose to be part of the... Chose or was, was forced? I think, it, well, I mean, you could have gone, you could stay rogue. I mean, there are states that do stay rogue and, and India could have done. I mean, it's... It's still known diplomatically to be disagreeable about disagreement. So, I mean, it hasn't lost that ability <laughs> to be spiky in the world arena. I, th- I think the, the problem is, is I th- it, it lived through certain ages, India, post-independence. Um, and, you know, Nehru, for all his temples of technology, discovered the disease of uh, gargantuanism, yeah. you know. The, Giant you know, dams. Yeah. 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 It, it just kind of got too big for people to handle. Yeah. And then it slipped back into something else. I mean, w- what it ended up with in the 70s is basically uh, an oligarchy um, based on patronage. Now, that oligarchy, I think, has been replaced by power uh, and based on money, really, because there are movements that spring up. I mean, the original Dalit movement, the BSP, when it came about, was quite revolutionary. That it's been corrupted by, uh, by money is its problem, because it's simply been co-opted into this other project, the which I think Arundhati's right to say, that the heart of it lies in, will the middle class give up political power and allow growth to be equitably shared? I don't think they've reached that point yet. Shidata, what's your answer to that question? Will the middle class do that? They have. They have, haven't they? They completely accepted that bargain. I mean, I think it's had a tremendous psychological effect on them. I mean, I don't think it's been all good. Just because they all have peop- we all have mobile phones, yes, it's true, and it's kind of convenient. That doesn't mean we are happier, even among the middle or the upper middle classes. And they have made that bargain. I don't think How they long? Have. They, they, they simply replicate old societal codes. I mean, there are very few people who answer their door in Delhi because they've got their own servants to do so. They don't go to the shops because their servants do so. They don't clean their babies' bums because their servants do so. I mean, uh-huh. it's it's still a feudal mindset superimposed on on wealth. I They're think I think that that uh, you're perhaps misunderstanding each mm. other a little mm. bit but oh, I, I, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I think what I think what uh, what is true is that uh, this sort of corporate uh, power has been superimposed on what is a feudal state and reinforced that feudalism so many of these battles do end up being battles of identity you know uh, the the maoists are not in a way fighting a class war there it's also an, a tribal identity mm-hmm. if you look at india from the time it became a sovereign nation who has the indian military been deployed against kashmir manipur mizoram punjab hyderabad telangana 
always Sikhs, Christians, Hindus, tribals, never again. I mean, if you had a massacre of 2,000 Brahmins on the streets of Gujarat, can you imagine what would have happened? Okay, okay. I, I think we, we're going to have to wrap up now, but I want to end uh, with a reading, actually, from you, Arundhati, about okay. a protest you went to see in Delhi. Um, it's, it's, it's from the, the last essay in this book called The Trickle-Down Revolution. And it's about a protest which I said you could smell from a, a long way off because, because it, was, it was a protest by a thousand slum dwellers, I mean pavement dwellers really, who had, had just not had any, any access to any kind of human hygiene for a long time. The people at the protest in Jantar Mantar that day were not even slum dogs. They were pavement dwellers. Who were they? Where had they come from? They were the refugees of India shining, the people who were being sloshed around like toxic effluent in a manufacturing process that has gone berserk, the representatives of the estimated 60 million people who have been displaced by rural destitution, by slow starvation, by floods and drought, many of them man-made, by mines, steel factories and aluminum smelters, by highways and expressways, by the 3,300 big dams built since independence, and now by special economic zones. They are part of the 836 million people of India who live on less than 20 rupees a day, the ones who starve while millions of tons of food grain is either eaten by rats in government warehouses or burnt in bulk because it's cheaper to burn food than to distribute it to poor people. They are the parents of the tens of millions of malnourished children in our country, of the one and a half million who die every year before they reach their first birthday. They are the millions who make up the chain gangs that are transported from city to city to build the new India. Is this what is known as enjoying the fruits of modern development? What must they think, these people, about a government that sees fit to spend 240 billion rupees of public money for a two-week-long sports extravaganza, which, for fear of ter terrorism, malaria, dengue, and New Delhi's new superbug, many international athletes have refused to attend, which the Queen of England, titular head of the Commonwealth, would not consider presiding over, not even in her most irresponsible dreams. What must they think of the fact that enormous sums of money had been stolen and salted away by politicians and games officials? Not much, I guess, because for people who live on less than 20 rupees a day, money on that scale must seem like science fiction. Standing at Jantar Mantar on that bright day, I thought of all the struggles that are being waged by people in the country against big dams in the Narmada Valley, Polavaram, Arunachal Pradesh, against mines in Orissa, Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, against the police by the Adivasis of Lalgarh, against the grabbing of their lands for industry and special economic zones all over the country. How many years and in how many ways have people fought to avoid just such a fate? I thought of Mase, Narmada, Rupi, Niti, Mangtu, Madhav, Saroja, Raju, Gutsa Usendi, and Comrade Kamla with their guns slung over their shoulders. 
I thought of the great dignity of the forest I had so recently walked in and the rhythm of the Adivasi drums at the Bhumkal celebration in Bastar, like the soundtrack of the quickening pulse of a furious nation. That's it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guest, Arundhati Roy, who you've just heard reading from her new book, The Broken Republic, and Siddhartha Deb, whose book, The Beautiful and the Damned, is also out now. Thanks to Tarandit Ramesh for reprising his old role as Delhi Watcher for The Guardian. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. The producer was Harriet Grant. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.